Okay, any questions from this morning? Any questions from Luke or anything else in general? Yes, Elsa. No, no, okay. Okay, okay, that, that, here's, so here's, here's the question um, for the tape. Um, Jesus said, and I quoted this morning, if you, if you loved my father, you would love me. So for the modern-day Jews who do not love Jesus, but claim to love the God of the Bible, what God are they worshiping? Um, what, I, what I would say is... My first off thing, I'm looking at Zeb. Zeb's going to fix my theology if I say this wrong. Um, I would say that they are worshiping God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. So in the essence, they're worshiping something true, but clearly they aren't worshiping him in, in truth, meaning they themselves are insincere. Jesus is emphatic on that point. If you love my father, you love me. So, and, and in his, he's not challenging where they're looking. They're looking to the right book. You can learn about, your, the Old Testament reveals the true God. It doesn't reveal him as fully and as clearly as the New Testament in addition, but you are looking at, an, what it says about God is accurate. It's true, right? So, so if you were simply going to your Old Testament to look at God, you'd be learning true things about the one God. It wouldn't be as full as the New Testament. So I think the problem is primarily their own insincerity. They aren't really lovers of this God revealed. Or they've given him such a makeover that this new softened image they do like. But I want to insist the Old Testament reveals truth about God. And the God revealed in the Old Testament is God. And so Jesus makes the issue, you don't really love my, you don't really love my father, because if you did love my father, you'd love me. So I would say that the problem isn't that they're worshiping an incorrect view of God, although I'm certain they don't have a developed Trinitarianism. Um, but the issue Jesus places is more on their own sincerity and fidelity and love than it is fundamentally the insufficiency of the revelation of God through the Old Testament. Zeb, you, go, you cool with that? Mostly, he's, mostly, he's mostly cool with that, yeah. Anyone else want to add to that? I don't think that that's like excommunication. Well, thank you. And this is very <laughs> kind of you to say. It's very, very kind of you to say that. I appreciate that. Um, the, bigger, I, the one thing that I would add or clarify mm. side would just be the idea that the, the, old, the Old Testament descriptions of God have the Trinity in shadows and sure. out of focus. The New Testament shows it in focus, but in yeah. Sure. And they're also believing in any false But if some, my, my point is, if somebody today, like, or even like the way New Tribes does their evangelism, when, they, when New Tribes goes out, they teach the Bible, the whole story of the Bible, so they start in Genesis, right? And then they move forward. If people, if you taught someone that way, if you picked up and started in Genesis and 
and didn't bring New Testament theology back and just taught it historically through. If a person truly responded to that in faith, when you got to the clearer Trinitarian parts, you would love Jesus. Jesus is clear on it. If, if you've received the first bit, you're going to love this other bit. So that, that's, all, and that's all I'm trying to emphasize is it's, it's not like, oh, we've got to come in here and fix this stuff. You know, if you love this Old Testament, you're going to love the New Testament. If you really love the Old Testament, you're going to love the New Testament. And then that's going to clarify a bunch of things for you. Um, so, no, no, fair enough. Your point, the, the new is in the old concealed and the old in the new revealed is sort of the cheesy rhyming phrase that's used. Um, I'm just saying that all I'm emphasizing is fundamentally it's not a problem of information, it's a problem of love and sincerity. Um, because there is plenty of information in the Old Testament. It, the New Testament adds a ton, to be sure. Um, does, that, does that, you want to run with that? or Anyone else want to add anything? Nick? You good? Yeah, okay. Okay. We all agree. Hey, look at that. We're all of one mind and in full accord and of one spirit. Sure, sure. And, and they're going to have to make accommodations as well. With the destruction of the temple system, people that want to attempt to practice Judaism today have got to radically reinterpret the ceremonial law. So there was a time when you could appear to attempt to legitimately follow the law. You know? and, and around 70 AD, that stopped. And so now, I mean, I think the Jews, all the sacrifices, like where's, where's the animal sacrifice? Well, it's prayers and it's, you know... Everything's been spiritualized. Someone Amel. And, oh, sorry. Sorry, Nick. Okay, sorry. Um, you know, heard about the Amillennial Falcon? It's the figuratively fastest ship in the universe. <laughs> Unlike the post-millennial Falcon, which keeps getting faster and faster and faster. Okay, sorry. There's about 10 people in here who get this joke. Okay, sorry. Okay, that's optimistic. Any other questions before we go to my... Yes! Yeah. No, no. Do I think they'll be saved? Um, go to Hebrews eight. And this does tie in. This may actually make a good a good causeway into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Um, my short answer is no. I think that anybody. I, I, what's, what's odd though, when you think about the Jews, is as they're teaching their kids the Torah and the, or as they call it, the Tanakh. Um, they're interacting with the Word of God. And it's, it's possible for some of those kids to respond in faith to that. I, I just believe if the Spirit's going to grant faith, the Spirit's going to get them to the second quarter of the book, you know, the last quarter of the book as well. Um, but they are interacting with the Word of God. I mean, that's the frightening thing. That the Pharisees of Jesus' day had not only the entire Old Testament memorized, but an extra-biblical body of rabbinic literature about twice as big. This is the smaller portion of what they had done to memorize. Um, Hebrews chapter 8. And, and I'll set the context of bridging this into the baptism of the Holy Spirit because I've argued that the book of Acts is a transitional book. And what you get in the book of Acts is two covenants simultaneously in operation. You've got the old covenant terminating, but as you'll see in Hebrews 8, it has yet to fully terminate. And the new covenant is ascending. And so you live in this sort of X in the book of Acts. 
And so some of the people you meet are, are people of faith under the old covenant, and what you're seeing is not their salvation, but they're, they're being brought into the new covenant. Cornelius is, is said to be a God-fearer. His prayers have gone up as a memorial before God. And we know from Hebrews 11 that without faith it's impossible to please God. So how does Cornelius please God if he didn't have faith? I think he had faith. I think under the old covenant he was justified. What we see when Peter goes to Cornelius is rather him fully being included into the new covenant, not as a Gentile proselyte, but just as a Gentile. He's brought fully in. And so at the end of, so Hebrews 8 is one extended contrast between the two covenants, the covenant at Sinai and the new covenant. And the new covenant, according to Paul in Galatians, is really the old covenant. So really the new covenant is the Abrahamic covenant full bloom. So um, let, me, let me introduce this. Um, verse 6. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better. So Christ's ministry is better, Christ's covenant is better, since it's enacted on better promises, because the promises, you get the key word in Hebrews, is better. Jesus is better, his covenant is better, its promises are better. For if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. So he's saying that the very fact that God promises in the Old Testament, I'll make a new covenant with you, in principle, indicts the Old Covenant as insufficient. If the Old Covenant were sufficient and perfect, there would be no need of a new covenant. It'd be like if God said, and after I send Jesus, I'll send you a, a new Savior. All of a sudden, Jesus' death on the cross gets indicted as, well, I thought, no, that's good enough. We don't need a new Savior. This is a perfectly sufficient salvation, right? So the, the Arthur of Hebrews is saying, the mere fact that in Jeremiah and in Ezekiel, God says, I'm going to make a new covenant with you. We should know the reader is the, the law covenant isn't going to get us all the way to the finish line. And so he says he finds fault with it, and he quotes Jeremiah 31. And here, and, and let me pause, there are continuities, things that are continuous, through the two covenants, and there are discontinuities, things that change. So, through both covenants, we're not supposed to lie. We're not supposed to commit adultery. In one covenant, we're supposed to bring animal sacrifices pretty regularly. In the other, we don't. That would be a discontinuity, right? So there are continuities and discontinuities between the two covenants. And the author of Hebrews wants to highlight some significant discontinuities. In what ways are the two covenants not alike? Now, I want to emphatically state both covenants, the, the, the condition is faith. You're, you're brought into and you, you participate in the covenant by faith. Now we're going to look at some of the discontinuities. Verse 8, for he finds fault when he says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord. This is Jeremiah 31, 31. When I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, for they did not continue in my covenant. Which is to say, you had a generation of people who appeared to believe, who appeared to experience deliverance from God and salvation. They, their children were spared. The Red Sea parted. They went to Sinai. They made a covenant with God. And then what happened? They all died in the wilderness, right? Did they enter the promised land? No. Caleb and Joshua did, and their kids did, and that's it. They didn't continue in the covenant. And so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I'll make with the house of Israel. After those days, declares the Lord, I will put my law on their minds. I'll write on their hearts, and I'll be their God, and they shall be my people. And they shall not teach each one his brother, his neighbor, and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from least of them to the greatest. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I'll remember their sins no more. And here's the key. There's a long introduction to verse 13. 
In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete, and what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So at the writing of the book of Hebrews, the old covenant is becoming obsolete and ready to vanish away, but it hadn't yet vanished away. I think at 70 AD, this is my deduction, 70 AD is when it's done. And, and here's what I mean. Um, I'm trying to see, was it? Okay, there we go. You've got to make eye contact with the person who asked the question. Sorry, I've just got to scoot over. Okay. Um, here's, here's what I mean. I, it's not as though you've got two options for how you want to get right with God. You can choose the gospel, or you can just believe in the Old Testament God. But the question's got to be asked, right? Up until, up until the resurrection of Jesus, what was the, the gospel? What was the message of salvation? Well, you go to Hebrews 11, you look at the hall of faith, and it seems to be believe and respond in faith to what God has said. So Joseph believed God and said, I'm not an Egyptian. Bury my bones in the promised land. Um, Moses chose to be with the people of Israel. In other words, there's no, for us in the new covenant, the object of belief is always Jesus and what he did. Right? That, that, that doesn't move. But you look at the old covenant, the people that are of faith, it seems like at wherever they're at in redemptive history, they're responding in faith to what God says. So you know, for someone like um, Simeon, who I argued because he was righteous was justified. He's a person who'd read his Bible and he believed. I mean, look, we saw him. He's, he's looking for the hope of the consolation of Israel. God says he's going to send a deliverer. I'm looking for him. He's responding in faith. He's good. Okay. The question is, when is that insufficient? When does that offer get taken off the table? Because Jesus dies in Jerusalem. What about some Jews hundreds of miles up north? Is all of a sudden that stop being a valid option the second he's raised? No, apparently there's this sort of terminating period of the Old Covenant. And what we see in every instance in Acts is anyone who has responded, and this is Jesus' own word, anyone who's really, truly believed the Old Testament um, revelation always, and in every instance, receives and believes in Jesus. There's a one-to-one correlation. Jesus is emphatic. If you loved my Father and his word, you would love me. And so in Acts, Paul comes across disciples of John the Baptist, they hadn't heard of Jesus. They hadn't heard of the Holy Spirit. They just, this is a prophet from God, and he's telling us to get ready for the Messiah. He's almost here. We need to repent of our sins. So they came out, and they repented of their sins, and I believe they were justified. Then Paul finds them and gives them the rest of the New Testament covenant message, and they, they receive the Holy Spirit. And so it takes a while for the word to get out there. But at a certain point, the author of Hebrews makes clear, that old covenant's terminating. It's no longer, well, I read Genesis, and I believed. Or I read the Old Testament, and I believed. Or whatever... It was. It's less clear what specific problem. In every instance, the people in Hebrews, this is our best place is to go try to reverse engineer Hebrews 11. What is it they're believing in? It really is all across the board. Abraham offers up Isaac. Joseph identifies his, his land as Canaan. Moses wants to be with the people of Israel. Um, you know, and it, it, they're believing different promises. And, and, and of course, I think it really means they're responding to everything God said in faith, which would include they're looking for a deliverer. It would include they're looking for a Messiah. But it really just seems like if you will, it seems like up until the New Testament and the gospel of Jesus Christ, if you will respond to what God has said and revealed with faith, you're good. And then that, that message narrows to what do you do with Jesus and his death and his life? The person and work of Jesus becomes the object of faith. Yes, Seb? Yeah. Himself yeah. Means, but in these days, he himself through Jesus. So there's only one. Jesus is right. 
And so in, when, when Titus destroys the temple in 70 AD and, and literally took it apart piece by piece, we don't even know how he... This is, this is one of the remarkable things. The stones, some of the stones that built, made at the temple were 20 by 20 by 40. Titus dropped him in the bay. We have not the foggiest idea how he moved stones that big. But Titus was so angry at the Jews because the Jews do a big revolt. And hundreds of thousands of them end up getting crucified. And Titus just comes in and just wipes them out, takes the thing apart, absolutely dismantles it. And what that should make clear, so, the, so any Jew who's, if we're thinking of, oh, but maybe there's some really well-intentioned Jews, it should be painfully obvious to them they cannot possibly attempt to keep the law. There is no temple. So that leaves them with two options. Has God sent us some other way to approach him? Or let's rework the law so we can do it anyway. Sadly, most Jews today have chosen the second option. Let's reinterpret the law, just like the Pharisees did, it's just different ways, into something we can do. And so now animal sacrifices become prayers or become memorials or whatever. But there's, not, there's no possible way you can read, read um, the books of Moses and say, hey, can we do this? And say yes. Yeah, God was not demonstrated he's a big fan of innovation when it comes to worship. <laughs> yes, well, Lee. And I always think of, you know, there's the, they're going to start Jerusalem and work their way out, but the, the window of being yeah. the Jew is getting smaller and yeah. smaller and yeah. smaller, yeah. and it covers the whole world. Yeah. Yeah. And what day did they jump out of? Because they're still bathing Jerusalem. He got it out to the water. I don't know where. It, you want to look it up where he dropped? He dumped them in, he dumped them in, in the ocean. Yeah. I don't know exactly where, yeah, but yeah. 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 They. They don't let anyone buy into historical evolu- historicism, evolutionary historicism. What I mean is the notion that we're we, people get. Well, C.S. Lewis. I was listening to an essay of his, and he was he was critiquing not the theory of evolution itself, but how the theory of evolution had created this sort of worldview that everything's getting better. I mean, and Lewis was living at the height of optimistic op- modernism, and so everyone who's come before us a bunch of morons, and we're the best people. Yeah, what? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, no, and and he's, the term he came up for is chronological snobbery. And we tend to think, oh, those morons, they thought the earth was flat. Those, these people, like Cain's kid. Okay, get this. Cain's children, one of them developed woodwind instruments. The other is the father of those who smelt iron and brass or bronze. Not just one, but two type of ore smeltings. And, you know, woodwind instruments. These people are inherently brilliant, far more inherently smart than we are. We, we can get stuff done because we have computers. We can compile knowledge. We've had libraries before that. We can pool information. But we're just talking about people who are inherently brilliant. We have no idea how they built the pyramids. I mean, we've got some idea, but still really no idea how on earth they got some of this stuff done. And people are just smarter. I mean, we are the genetic runts of the litter. Um, We're in the gene pool, and it's, it's, it's the kiddie pool at this point. You know, it used to be way deeper. And these people were smart. And yeah, and the average age span was 30, and that didn't mean if you lived to 40, you were an old person. That's the other one that always drives me crazy. It's because of infant mortality. The big thing, yeah. no, the big thing, the big thing that our medicine's done is, is, is we've wiped out infant mortality <coughs> to a large extent. But it used to be many families would have like eight or nine kids, and three or four would not make it out of infancy or early childhood. But if you made it out of early childhood, 
You lived about the same. We have not done much to push the average lifespan. Moses wrote the year of a man is 70, year by force of strength, 80, and we've only put average lifespan into the mid-80s. So anyway, sorry. That's my little, I'll get off my little soapbox. Um, anywho. Um, so, so, back, so finally back to your question. Um, faith is not something we muster up. Faith is a gift of the Spirit. The Spirit's got to work on someone's heart. The good news is Jews are reading the real Scripture. They're reading, not the whole real Scripture, but they're reading, the, there's power in what they're reading. The Holy Spirit has tools to work with. But if they ever come, but remember Jesus' words, if they really received the Spirit, we would receive Him. If they really had the faith the Spirit gives to receive the Old Testament, they would receive Jesus. And I don't think the Spirit's going to work in someone's heart and not finish the job. So that you have some like half-converted Jews who've received the Old Testament, but you know, I don't think it's going to happen at all. Um, but yeah, that window has closed. And it should be painfully obvious that the window is closed because there is no temple. There's, what they're doing and their worship system looks radically different from anything in this book. They cannot legitimately claim, hey, we're doing this. They are not. Not even remotely close. Um, any, any additions on that? Yeah. Yes. Oh, then Greg. The Temple Mount? What? Sorry, what? Jews for Jesus. Yes. Yes. Oh, no, no. But they're getting evangelized. The question was, could there be, I think the question was, could there be any well-meaning, ignorant Jews whose parents never told them about these Christians? They just grew up in a Jewish home. They read their Bible. All they had was you know, Genesis through, um, you know, I think their Bible would be Second Chronicles. And um, they'd have everything else just different order. Could there be any possibility those people could be saved? Well-meaning Jewish person. He's never, he's not rejected Jesus. He's never heard of him. His parents never told him about him, you know. And he just reads this, and I'm saying, well, I don't think so. Not anymore. They're, yeah. They're, they're, uh, believing devout Jews are Mm-hmm. You mentioned Jews for Jesus. There's a guy in my high school graduating class who is the national director of Jews for Jesus in Australia now. Mm. And his family disowned him when he, uh, when he got saved and, and not had any contact with him since. They're, they're, they're yeah. yeah in, in general, Hasidic Jews are pretty hostile to Christianity. Largely because they really take offense at our sort of, from their point of view, co-opting their religion. Because, of course, we claim that, well, really, we are the real fulfillment of Judaism. <laughs> In some sense, we're more real Jews than they are. Um, and, and Paul admits this much. It's meant to provoke them to jealousy. So insofar as that's going, that, that's, that's, a, that's a hopeful response. It'd be far more hopeful than a lukewarm, mediocre, yeah, whatever, who cares, that's your truth. You know, um, but Greg... Absolutely. Oh, no, Zechariah 12.10, the Lord will pour out his spirit on them and they will convert and they will look on him whom they pierce. But, but Kimmy, back to your question. Yeah, let's just go to Zechariah 12 real fast and end this question there and then jump into the baptism of the Holy Spirit. God makes it clear, Kim, when, when God's going to convert Israel and he will convert Israel, I think, nationally. Zechariah 12.10 is stunning for a number of reasons. Um, it will be through a crucified Messiah that they have faith in and not apart 
from a crucified Messiah that they have faith in. In Zechariah 12, we just taught through this last year, this book. And I pretty much taught the entire book of Zechariah because I want to get to 1210. Um, oh, no, it, before they've ever heard a crucifixion, before the Romans were around, and notice the interplay of this individual. Is it God talking or is it his servant talking? It's all there. I mean, Trini the veiled Trinitarianism stuff, all of that's there. Verse 10, and I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him. Okay, so we're we looking at God or we're we looking at him? Yes. Him whom they've pierced. Predicting. I mean, this is before crucifixion. Him whom they've pierced. They shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. Then he goes on to describe the weeping. So here's the mass conversion of Israel, followed by the cleansing at the, the last 13.1, um, which really should be the last verse of 12. On that day, a fountain shall be opened in the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So God is not done with Israel, but there is no salvation for Israel apart from faith in a crucified Messiah. And, and they, it will click and they will realize, what have we done? And they will repent in sackcloth and ashes, and God will be merciful. And one by one, God is doing that every day with Jews. But, yeah, that's, that's the, uh, yeah. Are we good with that question? Okay. Any other questions before? Donna. I have a question, but it's not a quick one. Maybe you can answer it another time. Okay. The Old Testament quotations that Paul quotes in Galatians do. The, the issue, though, is Jehovah's Witnesses. They claim that Jesus wasn't crucified on a cross, but he was killed on a torture stake. Um, yeah, that, that it was up, that it was all, like, is that what you're referring to? No, I, I just wondered. The, the tree, back up for yeah. a minute. Okay. The tree and the cross are, the tree and the cross are, they're corresponding, they're, they're basically the same thing, but Jehovah's Witnesses specifically, they, I was actually just talking about they, they claim that Jesus wasn't crucified on a cross at all with his arms outstretched. They claim that he was crucified with his hands above him on a vertical stake. It has zero, there's a, that's not, there's no reason to think that, and it has absolutely zero relevance to the discussion. That's purely a, it's a, it's a tactic that they use to make you think, oh, well, if Christianity's been wrong, it's not like a basic thing as how Jesus died, then what else could they be wrong about? Maybe the Trinity, maybe God, they could be wrong about God. Right. Jehovah's Witnesses, they deny the Trinity. They're, they're, they're yeah. even the, the, end of the, the end of the day, is what the Bible says is they crucified him. That's the word. And then we have to go outside of the Bible to learn what does that mean? So the Bible does not describe in detail a crucifixion. It does say they pierced his hands and feet. We know that. Sure. Oh yeah, he had no. He had to parry his cross. Thank you. So there's there's an actual word there. 
You know, no, and, and Paul boasting only in the cross, yeah. right. But I mean, if someone wanted to argue the cross was, was not a T but off a bit, I wouldn't get in a fight over it. You know what I mean? Like, if someone wanted to argue the cross was more like that, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't freak out about it because what we know is there's a cross, there's pierced hands, there's a pierced feet, and he's crucified. And then we've got to go, to, we've got to go outside the Bible to studies of ancient Rome to get our detailed descriptions. Now, there's prophetic detailed descriptions, but... Right. The reference, the reference to the tree, though, is biblical language. Let me, let me. Okay. What you tell them is he carried a. The Bible says he carried a cross. The Bible says he was crucified. The Bible. Well, but the cross is made of tree. What's what's, right? I mean. No, no, and and the Old Testament, and here's the here's the development. Okay. Um, in Numbers, this is why like, I want to name, my wife won't let me name a kid Phineas, but I'm still holding out hope for Phineas. But Phineas is a boss, okay? Go, go to Numbers real fast. Yeah. And this is where the ESV footnotes are helpful. Okay? Numbers 25. There's a mass orgy going on with pagan idolatrous women. Because Balak hires Balaam to curse Israel. Balaam cannot curse Israel, but Balaam gives Balak a strategy. Lead the people into sin and their own God will punish them. So Balak sends in the girls and there is a mass orgy or something like that in the Valley of Peor. And Moses and the heads of the Levites are standing at the tent of meeting, pulling their hair out, going, what on earth? And... Um, so verse 2 of Numbers 25, they invited the people to sacrifice their gods. The people ate and bowed down to their gods. Israel yoked himself to this, this pagan worship, and a lot of the pagan worship was sexual because it's fertility cults, because you want it to rain, you want there to be crops, you want kids to, to plow the land, so fertility, like those Ashtaroth poles that you hear about, they're almost certainly phallic symbols, um, tall trees. We won't unpack that any further. Um, but, but a lot of this is tied around fruitfulness and, and fertility. Even the offering up of your sons to Baal, I'll give you a son, give me more. You know, it's, it's sort of the prosperity gospel, sow a seed and reap ten or something. I don't know. But it, a lot of this centered around that because the entire economic life was centered around fertility. Fertility of the land, fertility in the home. The Lord said to Moses, take all the chiefs of the people and hang them in the sun before the Lord. Now the ESV has a footnote there, for me at least, or impale them. Now, considering that's what Phineas is about to do, I think that's probably the right reading. So God sets up the punishment, impale. Okay? Um, which is exactly, verse 6, um, Behold, one of the people of Israel came and brought a Midian woman to his family in the sight of, in it, to his family in the sight of Moses and the sight of the whole congregation, the people of Israel while they were weeping in the entrance of the tent of meeting, when Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest saw it, he rose and left the congregation and took a spear in his hand. He went in after the man of Israel into the chamber and pierced both of them. The implication is they're in the middle of the act. He impales them at the same time. And the woman threw the belly 
Thus the plague on the people of Israel was stopped. Nevertheless, those who died by the plague were 24,000. So God says either hang or impale, and then, and then Phineas goes and impales him. So I'm guessing the, the proper reading is impale. So now jump over to um, Numbers 31. No, no, Numbers 31? Hold on. No, Deuteronomy 21. Deuteronomy 21. This will get us to the cross eventually. Only actually in one more stop, really. We're almost there. This then becomes the antecedent for Numbers 21-22. If a man has committed the crime punishable by death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, same words, or impale him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day, for a man hung or impaled on a tree is cursed by God. Now go to Galatians three, thirteen. So that's the arc. But that's the arc of this of this thread is we, we're not even told in Deuteronomy what the offenses are that are so bad that you would impale somebody, but Basically, Deuteronomy is saying, hey, if somebody does something again that's so wicked, so awful, that you think, okay, we, we got, this is an impalement-worthy offense, make sure you take them down because they're cursed on a tree. And that sets up the curse motif. Um, we get to Galatians 3. Yeah, Galatians 3.13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Which is another way of saying the sin that you and I committed was so awful, it deserved that type of punishment. And even long before the Romans came up with impalement, with a crucifixion, God in Israel had already set a picture of, of impaling or nailing or piercing someone with a tree and hanging them off the ground. Because apparently when Phineas was done, he just stuck the pole on the ground and there they are, you know. Hanging. No, you got to take them down. You can't leave them up all day. And so, they're, they're, so there's the language, Donna, of tree. So, so I will use cross and tree interchangeably because they're both biblical terminology. He was hung on a tree. He was crucified on a cross. I don't think I'm saying anything differently. Now, if I was talking to people who were trying to make a big distinction, I'd probably stick with the cross language because there's just as much, if not more, of that. But I'm equally comfortable talking about Jesus was hung on a tree, Jesus was crucified on the cross, and I think I'm saying the exact same thing. I, I, I see no disparity, but that's the, that's the Old Testament thread that leads to the crucifixion curse motif of Jesus bearing a curse and taking the curse on our behalf. Um, oh, no, 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 no. Just show, just show her like where they cry out, crucify, crucify, so they crucified him. He carried a cross, like, Carried the cross. And on the, yeah. the, I was looking up the um, terminology there. The word that's used for cross there can be a stake or it can be a cross. It's just what's the context of it. Are they talking about building a fence? Are they talking about a staros for a fence? Or are they talking about a staros for an execution? That's what right. the word is. The executing, the form of execution was a cross, but it was the same word as a vertical stake for a yeah, yeah, yeah. I think we have every reason to believe it was it was an arms out wide crucifixion, but but quite honestly, it, it's, imma, it's immaterial. Um, like, oh, he couldn't bear our sin if his hands were up. I mean, no. But, yes, but, no, Linda, go. Well, okay, so then basically, there's Jesus' 
Sure. Right. Yeah, they're 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 trying. Yeah, they're trying to use that to uh, to just argue that we've got all types of things wrong. Yeah, and they reject they reject our reading of the New Testament anyway already. This is one of their attacks. Like those silly Christians think Jesus died, arms out stretched on a cross, when in reality he was on a torture pole. Okay, I'd never heard the torture pole thing. Yeah, so that's that's new. Okay, okay, okay. Anything else? Any any other questions or thought? Oh, no, no, good stuff. Okay, Elsa. Ooh, that is the big that is the big challenge. I'll be right up front as a, as a dispensationalist and say the reinstitution of the of the of animal sacrifices is probably the thing I'm most like. Okay, God, if you say so. Um, <laughs> here's 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 the thing. Ezekiel for eight chapters at the end of Ezekiel describes a temple that everyone acknowledges has never been built. Okay? Eight plus chapters in Ezekiel. The end of Ezekiel, Ezekiel describes in, in excruciating detail. Like, here's what the doorposts will look like. And here's what the... Like, you get these reformed commentaries on Ezekiel, and they're going verse by verse, and all of a sudden they get to the last eight chapters, and they cover it in like five pages. I mean, that's a little bit of an exaggeration. But, but what do you do? Now, they would... So you've got two, you've got two options when you read Ezekiel's temple. This is a spiritual temple, probably talking about the church. This is what um, Covenant Amil guys will do. And I, I think that's a bit of a stretch. To me, why all the detail? And you're really going to be pressed. When, like, what, this two paragraphs about the door frame. what's that supposed to be talking about? And when we talk about the antechamber and the pomegranate-shaped, you know, what's that? I mean, and you can get creative, but you can make it mean anything. I mean, so I, I read it, and I think it's a real temple. Okay, the temple Ezekiel describes has animal sacrifices, which I'll admit that's the that's. If you want to ask me, Jeremy, what's the weakest spot or what's the what's the most uncomfortable spot in dispensationalism? I'll freely admit reinstitution of animal sacrifices, and the best answer given is they're probably memorial. They're probably done in the sense of um, commemorating what's happened. But yeah, I'll be the first person to say, yeah, I wouldn't have guessed that one, um, but. It does fit with the picture that Israel um, will, and I think this is really clear, really clear, Israel will eventually be functioning in the Mosaic Covenant properly with the Messiah King. And so if they're functioning in the Mosaic Covenant, Mosaic Covenant's got animal sacrifices. So I guess that does fit in. But I'll be the first person to say, yeah, that... Yeah. So I got some Reformed friends of mine who you know, are not dispensational, and they always tease me about that. And I'm like, no, fair enough. That is, that, that, that is the most uncomfortable piece of my theology. Fair enough. Um, and if it wasn't for the fact that Ezekiel's ridiculously descriptive temple included that... Um, yes? Oh yeah, they got a red heifer. Yeah. Shoot. Oh yeah. No, no. Once no, because no, no, no. You can't. You can't. 
You, you can't, no, let me, okay. We got five minutes, let me cover this. Temple Institute, you can check, they've, this right, they, Okay, a um, couple things on that. There is a bunch of, of very Orthodox Jews who formed an organization. You can check it online, Temple Institute. TempleInstitute.org is the website. And they've pretty much, they're ready to go. In theory, if they were to gain control of a portion of the Temple Mount, they could have a rudimentary temple up fast. They already have the golden candelabra. They finally bred a red heifer, so they got the ashes of the red heifer. No, the golden candelabra is out in the middle of a of a court in a public square in bulletproof glass. Yeah, I've seen it. It's just out there. You can see it. It's ginormous. They, they got everything built. So it's, it's functioning currently as a museum, but everything they're making is made to go. So who knows? I mean, Jesus, this could be the people who build the temple, or it could be another generation at another time. I don't know. It's just interesting. It's interesting that we live in a day where, in theory, stuff could happen. Who knows? Yeah. Yeah, you hear about the cell phone thing? I'm talking about my cell phone, praying. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And the Muslims like make them stop. You know, it's weird. I don't know how you enforce that. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, you couldn't just do the tabernacle because the law makes it clear. Once the Lord has chosen the place, you have to do it there, and God's chosen the place. By the way, do you know what mountain the temple is built upon? I found this sound over Thanksgiving. Almost certainly the same mount that Abraham went up with Isaac. Moriah. Can't be absolutely dogmatic on that. But Moriah is only mentioned twice in the Bible. Once in, in Genesis 22, when God says, go to the land of Moriah, to the mount that I will show you. And Solomon built the temple on a mount in Moriah. Now, it's conceivable there's two different mounts. It's conceivable there's two different mounts. It's conceivable there's two different mounts than Moriah, but the connection is so perfect. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, it's, so maybe I could say it's very likely, it seems likely, that the temple mount is the same mount that Abraham offered up his son on. Yeah. Oh, wow. No. Presumably there's enough space. Yeah, I don't, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Wow. Huh. Weird. Okay. <laughs> yes, it's your smell. Okay. Um, one other thing, because we got two minutes. I always, I love, I love, I mean, I love Raiders of the Lost Ark, but you think the Nazis would have read the book of Judges? Because the whole notion, any nation that carries the Ark can't fail. Yeah, unless it's Israel. Um, I mentioned it, well, no. No, I mentioned, right? I mentioned it this morning, right? But, but Eli's sons, if you guys... Well, no, no, no. To me, to me, that story is one of the most. Hey, here's my class. Order, order in the class. 
No, but I mean, the ark goes on a military conquest by itself. I mean, this is a tough ark, and it comes back with booty, <laughs> right? No, you guys know what I'm talking about. It, Nadab and Abihu, um, Phineas, I mean, Nadab, no, not Nadab and Abihu, Phineas and um, who's the other brother? Eli's sons. Eli, Hof, Hophni, Hophni and Phineas, in a last-ditch effort, say, send for the ark, and then they send for the ark, and in the, you guys are in the Samuel study, you know this. The, the Philistines are like, oh, a mighty God has come into the camp, quick. And then they go fight them, and they lose, and the ark gets captured, and that's when um, Phineas's or Hophni's wife giving birth calls the kid Ichabod, um, the glorious departed. And the Philistines capture the ark, and they put it in the temple of Dagon, who's a big fish god. And the next morning, Dagon's fallen down prostrate in front of the ark. So you've got to pick God back up again and pick him back up. Well, the next morning, he's fallen prostrate in front of the ark with his hands and head cut off. And then the people start getting boils and tumors and rats. And then they move him from city to city, like playing musical hot potato, you know, with the ark. Until finally, it's like, we ain't taking the ark. So then they make golden rats, gold tumors, put it on the cart, send it back to it. So the ark's just dealing with them, whooping up on them just fine. You know what I mean? Um, it, it's just a mighty powerful story about, like, God doesn't need our help. We have the privilege of participating. He can conquer a nation with his ark. You know. But so, so in that notion of the nation that carries the ark cannot lose, I don't think so. Um, I don't think so. Anyway, now our time is up. Now, I do have a handout, and I really am going to get finish this topic, so next week we should do that. We'll see how that goes. Um, anyway, God bless. Have a good day. And uh, what's the downfall? Don't open it. No questions. Okay. See, there'll be questions next week because we're going to deal with Jesus growing and learning things. Jesus grew in wisdom. He says it twice. He grew in wisdom. How do you grow in wisdom if you have all wisdom? Next week. Next week. That's right. <laughs>